listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Daniel Seideman, an Israeli lawyer living, I believe, in Jerusalem, right? That's correct. And you've been very involved over the years in issues arising from the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict. You've uh, you've you've been active in in so-called Track Two negotiations at times between uh, uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Um, you were also, I think, uh, in an advisory capacity involved in the 2000-2001 uh, negotiations that are thought by some to have been one of the last uh, last chances to get a two-state solution and one of the best opportunities. Um, you And you've spent uh, a lot of time dealing with, uh, you know, land-related issues uh, in court, uh, for example, uh, when there needs to be a determination of whether uh, Palestinians are the rightful owners of land they're being evicted to, ev evicted from in East Jerusalem. You've argued before the Supreme Court a number of times. Um, and I, I want to talk about a few things. The main one, uh, I guess, is the situation in East Jerusalem and on the West Bank broadly. Um, you have been tweeting uh, over the last couple of days with some alarm about some developments uh, involving um, settlers and, and, and weapons and and uh, the possibility of a militia, in effect, a private militia being formed by one of uh, Bibi's cabinet members. Um, and uh, and I should say, by the way, people should follow you. Your, your Twitter handle is just your name with no space. Uh, and... Um, you know, th these things are important, I mean, in their own right, of course, any issues of human rights or, or, or for that matter, the preservation of human life. But in the current context, I think they become even more important, uh, you know, with the, with the Israel-Gaza war going on, when people talk about the possibility of it becoming a larger conflagration, one of the flashpoints they talk about is, is the, uh, you know, the occupied territory in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. Um, and you can imagine large-scale conflict breaking out there. So uh, uh, with that as uh, that setting of the table, um, do you want to tell us what it is that's been alarming you over the last uh, 24, 28 hours? I should say we're taping this on uh, early Tuesday afternoon, U.S. East Coast time. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, my focus is on Jerusalem. That's my expertise. Mm -hmm. I'm just another Israeli layperson on other issues, although I'm compelled to follow them more closely because of my interest in Jerusalem. Um, there's a broad context. Uh, Jerusalem is quite a remarkable city. Uh, we're in a very small geographical area. You have two peoples, national collectives, and three religions cohabiting the same space. It usually works, but it periodically um, erupts into violence. And we've seen it numerous times over the last centuries. Um, and what starts in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. What happens in Jerusalem resonates. It sends shockwaves uh, well beyond the city. 
Uh, and there are no shortage of examples. For example, you know, the Shalom visit to Al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount, uh, which sparked uh, the Second Intifada. Now, this uh, is, we should say, this is Ariel Sharon, who was, I guess, about to become prime minister at that point or something. No, he, he, he was, was already prime minister. He was a has-been. He was mm. trying to save his career. Mm. Mm. His visit sparked the Intifada, which destroyed uh, Ehud Barak's career and one of the ironies of history, Ariel Sharon replaced him. So this was part of his path as opposition leader to become a prime minister again. Um, Jerusalem has a reputation of being nitroglycerin. Uh, any random bump in the road will cause it to ignite. That's not accurate. There are things that tend to destabilize the city. And perhaps I can give you the latest example prior to the current war in Gaza. And yeah, can, can, I, can I interrupt just a second to give people a little bit of background about the relationship between East and West Jerusalem? I think you're talking about Jerusalem broadly. Uh, East Jerusalem was not part of Israel before 1967. Uh, some people, I gather it's a, it's a matter of ideological preference whether you refer to it as part of the West Bank or not, but under standard interpretations of international law, it is, I think, occupied territory like uh, the West Bank more broadly, although Israel has done, I guess, has done a kind of annexation or quasi-annexation unilaterally of, the, of East Jerusalem. Is there anything you want to say to, to just make it make any of this clearer? Hey, um, uh, Jerusalem between 1949 and 1967 was a divided city. Actually, it was two cities. It was a, an Israeli city, um, and it was a Palestinian city ruled by Jordan. Mm -hmm. um, it was a Berlin-like divided city, and it was two cities, both of them homogeneous, one Israeli, one Palestinian. In 1967, rather unexpectedly, uh, we took the West Bank and the, and the old city itself, and two weeks later, we annexed it. Now, that is an annexation that is not recognized by any other country in the world. Even Trump didn't recognize it. Um, so today, um, Jerusalem is a very binational city. Two homogeneous cities in 1967 uh, is now one large binational city, um, which is divided in more ways than I can possibly mention. But the most fundamental way is that the Israeli population, 60% of the city, have political rights. They're citizens and the right to vote in national elections. The Palestinians are not. They have entitlements, uh, but they're alienable. Citizenship is inalienable. They can be taken away. And they do not have the right to free political ex expression. Uh, most people in the world will call that occupation. I call that occupation. Official Israel contests that. But that means that the occupation of East Jerusalem is at the epicenter of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And if that were not enough, the most contested site maybe on the planet is the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, Al-Aqsa, and even the terminology used can get you in trouble. And that is, means that Jerusalem is the focus of devotion of billions of Muslims, billions of Christians, millions of 
uh, Jews. You have an old city, which is one square kilometer. You guys have malls in the United States that are bigger than that. And in that limited space, you have the three incompatible narratives of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, like tectonic plates of the West and the Arab world crunching up against each other. And it's remarkably stable most of the time, but when it's not stable, it is very dangerous. Okay, so thank you. And and I interrupted you. You can uh, proceed to fill us in on recent okay. events. You know, when, when you talk about Jerusalem, you can say, well, how far back do you go? When you already mm-hmm. start 3,000 years ago, two weeks ago. Uh, for this conversation, let's go to the previous round of violence with Gaza in May of uh, 2021. Um, things in Jerusalem have become tense um, for a number of months. And it was the first few months of the Biden administration. They were um, getting their appointees in place. And there were two um, events taking place simultaneously that made the tensions very high. Uh, First of all, there were tensions at Al-Aqsa, the Temple Mount, where there is a status quo that is supposed to govern the relations between non-Muslim visitors to the site and the Islamic authority and the Muslim worshipers, and there were a great deal of tension. Um, In addition to that, there was a Supreme Court case pending, which uh, involved the displacement of four Palestinian families from a nearby neighborhood in order to be given to biblically motivated um, settlers. to give our audience a bit of a, a, a context, most of the issues on the agenda between Israelis and Palestinians are territorial. Take out the scalpel, divide the land equitably between Israelis and Palestinians. That addresses most of the conflict. But there are two issues that I call the radioactive issues of the conflict. They're not territorial. And they're extremely sensitive because they cut to the core of the national identities of both Israelis and Palestinians. One is the attachment to um, the Temple Mount Al-Aqsa. Two religions, each going millennia back, laying claim to the same uh, uh, religious site. Um, um, and for people who haven't been there, by the way, you know, the the Temple Mount, which is what Jews call it, uh, is, you know, there's an historical actual temple of ancient Israel there. But on top of that, there is a mosque. And so what what Jews have traditionally had access to for worship purposes is just the western wall of the ancient temple. And I don't know, 15, no, uh, 15 centuries or so ago, something like that, uh, you know, there was a conquest that uh, ultimately led to there being a a mosque on top of it. So it's just as as explosive a situation as you can could have arranged Mm -hmm. almost. Go ahead. Actually, it's changed in recent years because for centuries, rabbinical opinion was that the Temple Mount was so holy that you were not allowed to set foot there. And until the middle of the 19th century, it was not open to non-Muslims. So it wasn't a contested site because 
people were not claiming laying claim to something practical mm. in the wake of the 1967 war um especially with the settlement movement uh, um increasing numbers of rabbis and jews use this as a tri triumphalist statement so it is extremely tense in addition to that in Sheikh Jarrah, the Palestinian neighbor, is the other radioactive um, uh, uh, element. And that is, you have two refugee peoples. Um, every Jewish family is a refugee family. You know, a generation or two generations back, and every Palestinian family is a survival of the Nakba, of the large-scale displacement of Palestinians in 1948. So, in the identities of both people, the core identities, the Jewish people would not be the Jewish people were it not for Jerusalem, and the Palestinian people would not be the Palestinian people without um, Al-Quds, Jerusalem. It's part of our identity. And the fear of displacement um, is one of the core fundamentals of Palestinian national identity, which we are witnessing today as a result of the war in Gaza. What was well, and there's a, there's a corresponding fear that's very much part of Jewish history, right? Which is Absolutely. annihilation, right? Annihilation, um, annihilation, displacement. Um, and in the first half of 2021, people were tinkering with both of these at the same time. Mm -hmm. Fear of displacement in Sheikh Jarrah, an erosion of the existing arrangements, and we could see this coming, and we were sending out warnings. You know, we try not to be alarmist, but we saw this, and um, it didn't work. Uh, there was a round of um, rockets that were fired in the direction of Jerusalem uh, in the wake of one of these triumphalist marches, and there was a very serious um, around the violence. Um, that should have told, taught us all a lesson, but it didn't. Um, the, the world in general and the early Biden administration in particular basically said, Israelis and Palestinians are a basket case. You're not going to get anywhere with them. And it's a very compelling argument, by the way, having seen things up, for, up front. I mean, let's put this on the back burner. And what we caught a glimpse of was um, you ignore Jerusalem only at great peril. Uh, and there's no walking away from this conflict, even if you're right, that you have two problematic clients to deal with. We've seen that even more so now. Um, in the world, the United States, have had to deal with two terribly problematic national leaders and two dysfunctional political systems. The prospect of moving forward towards an agreement was negligible, and but the general move was we can contain this, but we can't move forward. And the events in recent uh, weeks since the outbreak of war in Gaza is an indication that not only was Netanyahu mistaken in his strategy, but I think the rest of the world should be learning a lesson. I think they have. I think that there's a genuine fear that the current war in Gaza has regional and perhaps global implications. The friends that I am talking to in senior positions are 
telling me of an atmosphere of August 1914, um, the guns of August or the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is a palpable fear that this could become a regional war. I would hope that this will disavow people from the thought that this problem can be contained. You can either move forward or it's going to explode. Remember the third day of the second Intifada, it was exploding. And I went to meet a dear friend of mine, Ron Schlicker, who was the US Consul General, just to try and figure things out. Ron passed away very young a few years ago. And Ron said to me, Annie, you guys are gonna win this round. The, the Palestinians don't stand a chance. But what you've got to understand is you're not going to buy the Palestinians with trinkets and you're not going to break their will. You will engage them. And that's something that we have not been doing. When Ron was summoned to uh, President Bush for consultations, the president told him, you know, just put this conflict in parking gear. And Ron, with his Tennessee uh, um, uh, Southern draw said, Mr. President, this car ain't got no parking gear. It's got drive and it's got reverse. Mm -hmm. So, so here we are. Uh, and the, 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 well, there's a couple of things you tweeted about lately. One was uh, a reference to a demolition derby by which you meant uh, the, I guess the demolition of some Palestinian homes, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I think you saw as related uh, a development involving a, a suddenly kind of visible, uh, you know, kind of seed of uh, some kind of militia that would have the the blessing, if not leadership, of this guy, Ben Gvir, who is one of the, I guess, two most extreme members of the current cabinet uh right and uh and and i gather it seemed to have the support of like jerusalem's mayor the chief of police and certainly the 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 willing involvement of any settlers who wanted to play along i'm sure um wh what is that what is that second uh thing about okay um let me contextualize this a little bit i'll, I'll get to your Okay. Um, Israel's policies since 1967 have been driven by two fundamental vectors. One, to maintain a large Israeli majority and to make the city indivisible politically. As a result of that, we accelerated settlement growth in East Jerusalem. There were no Israelis living in East Jerusalem in 1967. There are 235,000 today. But in addition to that, we decided to put an artificial cap on the growth of the Palestinian sector. And we did so by not allowing legal construction. We had a curious theory that if we do not allow the Palestinians to build legally, uh, they will build, they will you know, um, abandon sex and childbearing and take up chess. That hasn't happened. They built, and uh, more about half of the homes in East Jerusalem are without licenses. Those are liable to be demolished, and there are probably 20,000 outstanding demolition orders. The orders are carried out um, 100 a year, 150 a year. It's horrible to the people it happens to. But when the new 
Netanyahu government uh, took office. Um, part of that coalition was somebody who was considered to be a terrorist by our security, who was indicted dozens of times, convicted many times. Um, in 2021, the chief of police of Israel said, this guy, Ben Gvir, has a lion's share of the responsibility for the eruption of violence with Gaza, and Ben Gvir now is the boss of this police chief. When Ben Gvir came in, he's gonna, he, his motto, and he's a clinical racist, I'm going to stick it to the Palestinians. And he took upon himself to accelerate demolitions, even though the authority was not his, it was in the municipality. But the police had to secure them. In the municipality, you have similar pyromaniacs, not all of them, but people in positions of authority. And there was a surge in the middle of this year, at the beginning of this year, in the number of demolitions. It went from a situation where Palestinians would go to bed at night and hundreds of thousands had demolition orders saying, it's not going to happen to me. And it was segueing into me, I could be next. And the tensions were rising. What has recently happened is that there have been four or five demolitions in the last week. Jerusalem is a tinderbox. Uh, a tinderbox. It, you know, the Palestinians are deeply concerned about what's happening to their families in Gaza. Israelis are horrified. Uh, all you need is a misstep. Had you come to me, you know, ten days ago and said, "Danny, things are too common in Jerusalem. What?" one thing could we do in order to cause an explosion? I would have said, have you considered uh, home demolitions? That should do it. It's an mm -hmm. act of colossal irresponsibility. Five years ago, it never would have happened because the prime minister was Netanyahu. But it was a different Netanyahu. It was the risk averse Netanyahu. He had a lot of bluster, but he had his head on, on the throttle and he was master of the universe. And he would say, stop it. It wouldn't have taken a call from the president, but if need be, there would have been one. This Netanyahu is an entirely different Netanyahu. He is captive to the most extreme and racist elements. And to be honest, he's a, a somewhat imperial. His you know, role models are Orban and Putin and the like. Uh, so there's nobody stopping. So that's dangerous. Now, I speculated three days ago, this round of home demolitions appears to be a coalition of the pyromaniacs in the Jerusalem municipality, the Bengvir, and the police. That was just conjecture. What happened yesterday? I see a press release of the mayor of Jerusalem, the uh, Minister of National Security, Ben Gvir, the um, Chief of Police, the, the Jerusalem Commander, and they have set, it up, set up rapid uh, response squads, I call them. It's my um, translation. Now, these, these, are armed, these are armed groups of citizens or what? These are armed groups of citizens. The term rapid response is a genuine and not a nefarious term. Um, on the border with Gaza, the people who saved thousands of lives were residents of the Kibbutzim who were, you know, had weapons in order to protect them. They never thought it would happen. And they were genuine heroes in the last, you know, many of them didn't survive. Mm -hmm. 
and save their neighbors, their friends, and their loved ones. This is part of a uh, a, a scheme by Ben-Gvir to hand them arms to everybody, to arm all of the Israelis, none of the Arabs, so much so that three days ago it was reported that the administration had expressed concern about U.S. weapons being used in this fashion, uh, and it was a very sharp statement. What we saw yesterday was uh, um, the creation of these squads in Jerusalem for Israelis only uh, under a minister who is intentionally trying to stir up trouble and to cause havoc um, uh, with a, a police department that has become regrettably more violent in recent years altogether, but they are being inspired by the darker side of the Israeli government, and every policeman has a darker side. This is basically the creation of a private militia run by an ultra-nationalist um, minister. It's the equivalent of handing over the national armory to the national national rifle association to the nra and giving them police powers um it's it's chilling um and very dangerous and i assume uh, it's it there's no doubt that ben gvir this this the, the cabinet member who's who's doing this he would like to see east jerusalem and the broader west bank ethnically cleansed right i mean he would like all the palestinians to leave is that pretty much an accepted you know, fact. He, he probably would have said as much in the past. He's more cautious with his words now. But um, prior to the war in 2021, he moved his parliamentary office to the area uh, that was contested in Sheikh Jarrah in order to inspire intercommunal uh, conflict. And he was successful. Mm -hmm. There are many of his colleagues who say the quiet part out loud. And that is a convulsive war is the opportunity for a second Nakba, the mass displacement of Palestinians. There are attempts to do so by violent settlers in the West Bank. One of the curious things is that the people who say we are in favor of a second Nakba don't recognize the existence of the first. They say, oh, we didn't do that, but we're going to do it again. Mm -hmm. So uh, that could, I guess, get pretty horrific. And and already on the West Bank, uh, there is an increase of this kind of thing, right? There, there is. Uh, I've seen reports lately. Well, well, the, the New York Times says that you know the number of confrontations on the West Bank has doubled over the last three weeks. But I also saw on Channel Four, uh, Britain's Channel Four a report about actual ethnic cleansing, settlers going to Palestinian villages and saying, get out within 24 hours or we're going to kill you. Some of the some of the Palestinians do leave, some don't. But uh, this is this is actually starting to happen more broadly in a way it wasn't happening, or at least to an extent that it wasn't happening six months ago, right? Okay. Um, first of all, I have to make a distinction between occupied East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank. Okay. We have to tell you that East Jerusalem has been much calmer and quieter than people uh, expected, uh, and we feared much worse. At the moment, there's a very tense calm. In the beginning, it was a calm 
that was caused by shock of the events. And today in East Jerusalem, it is a seething calm for reasons I'll tell you, but there has not been the eruption of violence. Mm -hmm. In the West Bank, you have the radicalization of something that has been going on for a while. Basically, occupation is not a policy of Israel. Occupation is not what we do. Occupation is what we have become. The DNA of occupation has been spliced into all of the mechanisms of Israeli governance in the West Bank. When I served in the army, and I served in the army for five years, I was in occupied territory. I was in Sinai for almost two years. I was in the Golan Heights. I had a few days in the West Bank. The, the army of Israel, the IDF, was to step to defend our borders. Today, it is a garrison army that um, when the war broke out, there were dozens of battalions uh, protecting settlers in the West Bank. And there were three battalions on our border with Gaza, um, which was extremely dangerous. Now, the army is no longer uh, a defense army. It is, I would not say, it is at times supportive of the settlers. More often than not, a blind eye, there will be violence from settlers and the army will step aside and observe. We have seen a pogrom in Khawara. I don't use the term lightly. I try to be precise with my terminology. There were one, a couple of fatalities on the Palestinian side. Much of the village was burned. Hundreds of settlers participated, and the army didn't intervene, and nobody was indicted. Now, is this, this the thing that happened some months ago before the war? One of those happened some months ago. Okay, that's that's that. Is that? But 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 the dynamic has accelerated significantly mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. Now it is open season. All of uh, public attention is focused on Gaza, and what's not focused on Gaza is focused on the Lebanese border and Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And the extreme settlers are seeing this as an opportunity to fulfill their goal, and their goal is to expel Palestinians from their homes. So there has been a significant rise over the last two weeks in the intensity, the frequency, and the consequence of settler attacks um, on Palestinian villages, Bedouin encampments, basically to rid much of the area of its Palestinians. This has not gone unnoticed. We've been watching this. What is new is that President Biden uh, publicly and very harshly told the government in Israel, you have got to stop this. Now, it's been said before, this is the least engageable government in Israel's history. That said, uh, this has the attention of the president. The president has talked the talk. It remains to be seen if he will walk the walk. If there will not be consequences imposed on Israel, this will not only proceed, it will get worse. And it could be very, very dangerous. Well, does it look to you like it has subsided at all since Biden said that? Or, or no. what? It no. hasn't. When, when I said that occupation is who we have become. Most of the soldiers and the commanding orders are not fascists. Mm -hmm. Most are not racists. But their mission is 
to protect, to serve the goals of the settlers and not to serve the goals of the Palestinians, which is their obligation under international law. If you say nothing, they will continue to you know, turn a blind eye, sometimes participate in violent displacement of Palestinians. You don't, they don't need to be given specific orders. It's who we've become. What you need to do is somebody with political courage to say, no, this is not who we are. This has to stop. And Netanyahu, as we know him now, is not predisposed to do that. So um, it, is, it won't be easy to stop this. It's deeply ingrained too deeply ingrained. It's, it's part of the rot that is set into Israeli society. But it's not going to happen on its own, and Netanyahu is not going to volunteer to do it. It needs robust and persistent international engagement with consequences. Mm-hmm. And you're saying that under international law, the, the, the soldiers are actually obliged to protect the Palestinians, and that's what they're not doing. You know, I, I have met... I think one sovereign in my lifetime, it was not the Queen of England. Um, it was the commander of the Central Command in the IDF. The sovereign in occupied territory is um, the military commander of that area. And he was about five feet eight, you know, spry guy, sovereign. Um, the international deals with situations of military necessity gives powers to the occupier. The assumption is that occupation will be temporary pending a resolution of the conflict. It's been temporary for the last 57 years. But basically, the army owes obligations for the welfare, benefit, security, and safety of the occupied people. Um, Under current circumstances, defending the settlers, which is not military necessity, has become the major role and the role of seeing the Palestinians as somebody that you have responsibility for is very absent. Now, speaking of defending the settlers, I assume that what settlers say, uh, if, if or at least some of them say, if you ask them why they attacked the Palestinian village is, is say, well, well, Palestinians attacked us. They are they are a threat to us. And of course, there have been attacks uh, by armed Palestinians on settlers. It's part of what Palestinians would say is uh, the resistance. But um, and and of course, one concern at the present moment uh, is that uh, there could be a more systematic uprising uh, on the part of the Palestinians. Right? That that. That I mean, apparently, I mean, Hamas, I gather, has some actual cells in the West Bank, although Hamas's actual area of governance is Gaza, of course. Um, but I think one concern is that 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 is a card that could be played in a certain sense. Now, not that not that by any means all of the kind of Palestinians who would participate in such a thing are are you know uh, under the control of some external force. But I gather Hamas has some influence with some of them. And then you can imagine just spontaneous uprising, and 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 so I guess I'm uh, just partly pointing that out to people, but also I want to ask you uh, how much of the settler violence do you think is driven by genuine fear, as opposed to just a sense of entitlement and and a desire to be rid of the Palestinian problem? It's overwhelmingly the latter. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, one of the claims, which I consider to be a specious claim, is that the settlements contribute to Israel's security. After the event, I never accepted that. And I, I served, as I told you, a bit in, in the West Bank. But it's widely rejected by Israel these days. It's clear that Israel's investment militarily, security-wise, in protecting settler in the West Bank transformed the Israeli army, created the wrong priorities. The settlers are seen as a security liability. They are not responding Generally, on occasion, yes, there will be attacks, and there may be the kind of explosion you're talking about. But their agenda is greater Israel belongs to us. Um, if you don't like it, you can leave. And even if you do like it, you know, you're going to have to leave as well. And they are now putting that into practice. Now, we have a small working group that's been meeting over the last year and a half about what the hell do you do in a situation where you can't walk away and you can't move forward? What do you do? And one of the people in this group, a former minister in the British cabinet, um, Alistair Burt, a, a great diplomat, from the very beginning said, we have to prepare for the, for the aftermath of the war. What war? He said, there's a war waiting to break out. It hasn't decided when, where and over what, but there will be a war. And we actually did some thinking on that. None of us imagined it would be like this. At the moment, Jerusalem is rather calm. The West Bank is seething. A week and a half ago, um, Abu Mazen was almost overthrown. Like he's, the head, he's the head of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, uh, and, and, and it was you know, touch and go. You know, the ice for them is very thin. He's old. He's not in good health. The possibility of an uprising or the possibility of the collapse of the Palestinian Authority is very real. And, and the Palestinian Authority, I mean, from the point of view of the kinds of Palestinians who would like to overthrow him, the Palestinian Authority is just an instrument of their oppression. In other words, they do some of the dirty work so that the IDF doesn't have to, in terms of maintaining control of the West Bank, right? The, the, the uh, Palestinian Authority was um, set up uh, to be an embryonic government of Palestine during the period of negotiations. Um, the negotiations uh, were not pursued in earnest. They failed. Israel was allowed to radically change the settlement and the whole terrain of the West Bank. And there haven't been negotiations for years. In the absence of that, the Palestinian Authority runs these large islands of, of cities, um, but with no international border, no genuine sovereignty. And they are widely viewed, as you have correctly pointed out, as the subcontractors of Israel. There was a, a, a summit in February, I believe, when things were getting very tense in Aqaba. Um, the Americans were present, the Israelis were present, Jordan, Egypt, and the Palestinian Authority. It was the first such meeting uh, that took place in quite some time. And I asked one of my uh, uh, young Palestinian friends, do you and your friends talk about what's happening in Aqaba? So yeah, we, yeah, we talk about it. Well, 
what do you say? Oh, it's our traders meeting your their control officers, the Israelis. Mm -hmm. And that is a very widely shared sentiment. Mm -hmm. So um, there is violence in the West Bank and there are terror attacks. Uh, it is by no means exclusively Hamas. There is widespread settler violence, but the lid is still on this. There is no guarantee that the lid will stay on. And one of the things that is destabilizing is the assaults on Palestinian populations in the West Bank. It's creating the sense that is pervasive. Israeli lives matter, Palestinian lives matter less, and at times don't matter at all. Okay. And that's a very, very dangerous sentiment to live with. Okay. So before I ask the, the next question, if you'll excuse me, I would like to make a, a 30 second uh, public announcement. So typically uh, in these conversations at about this point or a little later, um, I bring it into the public part of the, the conversation. The rest uh, is available only to paid subscribers of the non-zero newsletter. Um, and uh, with this subject right now, uh, the, the Israel-Palestine thing, I've been generally not doing that and I'm not going to do it today. I would uh, ask people to uh, consider if, if they think these conversations are valuable consider uh uh becoming paid subscribers to the non-zero newsletter on substack that gives you access to to all of the uh you know most of the conversations are partly behind the paywall that gives you access to all those and certain amount of print material in the newsletter failing that uh feel free to become an unpaid subscriber uh and the other ways you can support us are as you've no doubt heard from other uh, podcasters uh rate and review us on podcast apps or Apple Podcasts, smash the like button, as they say on YouTube, and so on. Thank you for excusing that commercial announcement, Danny. So I wanted to ask you, okay, so now this horrible thing has happened on October 7th, uh, and it naturally had a big impact on the psychology of Israel of Israelis. I mean, the magnitude of the attack Plus the the specific nature of some of the atrocities, uh, it was I think completely you know something like that was was completely unanticipated, uh, in in a country that that small, you know touches a lot of people. And by the way, my condolences if uh, uh, anyone you you know or related to was affected in any way. I'm sure you were affected in some way. Um, the but but to what extent? I mean, it sounds like the Ben Gavirs of Israeli politics. Uh, see this as as an opportunity, and I'm wondering to what extent the change in Israeli psychology does put the wind at their backs. I mean, is this uh, a more auspicious time for them to embark on ethnic cleansing uh, by a significant margin, or what? Um, I'll start from the end. I think not. I'm fairly convinced not. Uh, but you have to take into consideration that. This situation is so unprecedented, it's unknowable. It's not only unknown, it's unknowable. And I'd like to just zoom out a little bit. In the week, in the months preceding the war, um, there were mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people, week after week, I think it was 37 or 38 weeks, protesting what is considered by many as a judicial uh, coup by Netanyahu and a slide into authoritarianism. 
It is something that never happened in Israel. I don't think it's happened anywhere else at this magnitude and for such a long period of time. And this was basically uh, liberal, moderate Israelis rising up from a long period of dormancy and saying, no, you're not going to do that. The um, Netanyahu government had very little credibility even before the outbreak of the war. If there was any doubt, this war has destroyed the current uh, leadership of Israel. Netanyahu is dead. He's a walking dead man politically. The only question now is how much damage will he inflict on his way out? That means that the people of Israel, we are reinventing ourselves. And in the last two and a half weeks, there's been something that I consider to be as remarkable as the protest movement. We have been orphaned. There is no government. Netanyahu refuses to say the word responsible accountability. He's playing games to put the blame on the military. The government ministries are not functioning, not social welfare. There are refugees of Israel in Israel, nobody taking care of them. There are thousands of people who have family, immediate family, who are in captivity, who are hostages in Gaza. Nobody in government is talking to them. What has happened is that this movement was transformed into a popular uprising to fulfill the void left by the Israeli government. Government has been privatized. All of the captains of high tech, the, the fabled Israeli high tech, are now in these mass distribution centers providing materiel, food, um, ceramic, you know, Kevlar bulletproof vests, psychological counseling for people who are bereaved, filling in that void. And it's a reinvention of Israel. I would say the following. Nobody knows what Israel or Palestine will look like the day after a ceasefire, and there will be one day, a ceasefire. But I would be very hesitant about predicting. Common wisdom is that the country will lurch further to the right. I don't think that that is uh, necessarily the case. There are a number of our generals, people younger than me in their 60s, who saw what was happening on that Saturday morning in Gaza, put on their uniform, took a weapon, and went in and saved people. A guy 62, 63 years old, and he's getting a, a, a phone call from people. My son is here. These are from his phone's cell phone, where he is. The guy says, I'll find him and bring him back. Half hour later, he was in the guy's car phoning. These people have become heroes, and they are heroes. And most of them are politically uh, moderate. Most of them uh, are expressing the need for a political resolution of the conflict. This also, by the way, explains the special role that President Biden has fulfilled. Israel has no government. We do not have a leader. And to a certain extent, President Biden, with his genuine love of Israel, aside from being commander in chief, became the surrogate father or the surrogate prime minister of Israel and is 
deeply respected. Biden was vilified by a half of Israel who are uh, Trumpian. There's none of that left, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so let me put it this way. I don't think we will be an uglier society than we have been until recently. I'm not sure we'll be better, but I'm telling you, there will be an opportunity that has to be seized. If we don't seize the opportunity of the day after, we're going to see a repeat of this. So you think a two-state solution is still possible? I have been considered to be the Harold Stassen of the two-state solution. Uh, what, he, he was a guy audience. who kept running for president and uh, losing. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Um, uh, look, uh, I am an expert on very few things. Uh, but what I am an expert on is the mechanics of occupation, especially in Jerusalem. If you have an occupation and it breaks down, bring it into my shop and I will know where to oil the pistons and where the replacement parts and occupation is not only an existential threat to the Palestinian people, it is an existential threat to Israel. Uh, one of the heads of Israel, Mossad, uh, has said Israel confronts one existential threat in this generation. It is not Iran and Hezbollah. It's not the Palestinians. It is perpetual occupation. Israel will end occupation or occupation will be the end of us. And there's only one way to end occupation. It's a border. There are no two ways. The one state solution is a wonderful idea. It, uh, uh, it is uh, a reality only in Riverdale, New York, and children's coloring books. The two-state solution could, it might be dead. I know the details, but it's dead because it was killed. The one-state solution was always a fairy tale. That which was killed can be resurrected. This town has a bit of experience with resurrection of the dead, as you might recall. Um, I think people are now uh, realizing we can't continue, and the only way that this can happen is by means of proceeding to a two-state solution. Now, I don't believe that it is immediately possible, uh, but I, I can tell you a month ago, I said, I still believe that it's the only solution. I think it's inevitable. I don't think I'll live to see it. I no longer say that. I think that one of the achievable results of this horrible war could be a resumption of a political process, perhaps long, but the North Star will be a viable independent Palestinian state, because failing that, we will just revisit this until we collapse. Okay, let me uh, give you the case for skepticism, and then maybe you can fill me with hope in response. So uh, I was in Israel, um, I don't know when this, 2000. 10, 2011, and we visited the West Bank. Um, now, uh, you probably don't remember, but I actually, I was part of a group that had breakfast with you. Now, I know you do remember, uh, you and I did an event in New York, I, can't, I think a couple of years after that, that we we both recall, mm-hmm. but I I had actually, uh, I was with Daniel Levy and some others whom you know well, I'm okay. sure. Mm-hmm. And, and so he arranged this breakfast uh, and it was in the course of that visit. You know, they took us through the West Bank. We talked to the people in Breaking the Silence, you know, the, the veterans of of the uh, occupation force who have, who have become critics of the occupation. Um, and I came away thinking it was just too late uh, for the two-state solution. And there were kind of two reasons. 
One was just to observe how the West Bank increasingly looked like, you know, uh, scrambled eggs that it was too late to unscramble, right? Like more and more settlements, they're connected by these highways that the Palestinians aren't allowed to drive on. Meanwhile, the, the highways keep the Palestinians from visiting their near relatives a few miles away because they can't cross them and so on. It was just more and more of a mess. Uh, settlers even then seemed to be, if anything, getting uh, more militant. And then you factor in Israeli and American politics. I mean, th to me, that is as big a problem as the situation on the ground in the West Bank, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, it's no secret that American policy has generally been uh, pretty responsive uh, to perceived Israeli needs, perceived needs of, of the state of Israel. And, you know, Aaron David Miller, one of the American negotiators, uh, once said, you know, part of the problem has been America has just served it's kind of posed as as the 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 neutral arbiter, but it's been Israel's lawyer. It, it you know it, all it does is it goes and says to Israel, "What do you want? What's your idea of a two state solution?" And then it go, and they tell them, and then they, then America goes to the Palestinian and says, "Okay, here's what we want," you know, and and the uh, and you know that is one reason that uh, you know Palestinians say that what that some of them will say what they were offered. You know, it's commonly said Palestinians were offered a state, they turned it down. Well, some of them will say, wait, was that really a state? I mean, when I think of a sovereign state, I think of something where you control your borders, your airspace, you can have as big a military as you want. You know, that's what sovereign states are. That was not on offer. And what if you if you ask why was it not on offer? I think one reason was Israeli fear about what would happen if you really actually created a sovereign state. Now, I personally have an answer to that. I think I I have an answer to that, that it's it's it, it, actually sovereign states, even if adversaries or enemies are manageable in a way that insurgents aren't. OK, <laughs> there's a much clearer dynamic of deterrence and so on. But 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 that aside, I think so if part of the problem is Israeli fear. Well, after October 7th, I don't think that's going away. Right. So I think it was already a close to insoluble problem. And now one of the major sources of insolubility is intensified. That's my OK. Talk me out of that. I, I want to get cheered up. Danny. There are half a dozen things I have to talk you out of because it was quite long. But I'll try to remember if I forget something. Please remind me. I'll be happy to. Let's start, let's start with the questions. The two state solution alive or dead. Now, very often the answer is based on. Uh, your ideology or your mood, you get up in the morning and the two-state solution is dead and you have two single malts and it comes back. I cannot give you the answer, but I can give you the definitive question and it derives from things that you have described. We've been through two rounds of negotiations between the principles between Arafat, Barak, Olmert, um, Olmert and uh, Abbas. We now know where the possible border is, 99%. So it's a, you know, it, it is, you know, in, there was a gap between Israel and the Palestinians about the size of a land swap. Abbas, the Palestinians saying 1.9%, Omar says, we know where it goes. And since we know where it goes, we know the following. How many settlers will have to be relocated in order to arrive at that border? Uh, when you were here, the number was 115,000 Israelis. 12, 13 years later, it is 200,000 Israelis. Now, 
what I'm saying is, if Israel, there are 700 settlers in the West Bank. If Israel has the capacity and the will to relocate 200,000 of those settlers, the two-state solution is alive. If we don't, it's dead. We have the capacity. We don't have the will to mm-hmm. um, uh, relocate one settler. We have a government that's devoted to making that impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's number one. Number two, standing over the Mount of uh, on the Mount of Olives uh, not long ago with a very prominent member of Congress, a name that uh, you are very familiar with, describing the radicalization that was taking place. And, um, and the congressman came over to me and said, Look, Danny, you know, I, I'm APAC. He's APAC like, I'm APAC. But if you keep this up in five years' time, you're going to be left with Pastor Hagee of the Evangelicals and BDS. The center will not hold. Israel has taken for granted that we can act with impunity forever and that we can defy opinion we can we will we will always have the support of the united states and europe if i look at the events of the last few weeks i'm fearful that we have lost the next generation and we've lost it in ways that some of them are promising i think it's good for israel to be accountable some of them are chillingly awful because the anti-semitism is there both on the right and on the left but it means that israel is going to have to sweat in ways that we haven't sweated before in order to earn our support. All of this will will, will, will clarify things. I do not think that there will be any serious move towards a resolution. There will, I hope, be a political process that gradually deoccupies the West Bank. Does it gradually? But the goal is unequivocal, a viable Palestinian state, because Nothing else is going to prevent another round of convulsive violence, even if it's in the distant future. Uh, I'm not sure that filled me with optimism on balance. I will say I wish that congressman would say things like that in public, uh, but that I guess that tends not hey, to happen. Let me, let, me, let me tell you a story. Mm-hmm. Um, about seven years ago, I took three senators around Jerusalem. One was the late Senator McCain. One was Lindsey Graham the real Lindsey Graham or the whatever, another Lindsey Graham, and Senator Barrasso. Uh, It was a fascinating encounter. And, you know, they were very suspect, but it turned into a very lively conversation. Um, And at the end, it was a Shabbat afternoon, and Senator McCain says, you know, what do you want from us? And I said, look, you're not going to allocate funds in anything I'm interested in. You're not going to accept my political positions. I don't want the engagement of somebody I can convince in you know, three hours in the Shabbat afternoon. But you know, you're the member of the most uh, prestigious club in the world. You're a senator. And you have allowed yourself to be bullied into positions you don't believe. I am asking you to do one thing. Make the conversation that we had here today in Jerusalem possible in Washington. Nothing more. I I don't Um, recall any of those people doing that. I'm not sure who the third one is, but I don't recall Graham or McCain making a step in that direction. You're 100% correct. But trust me, it's not only that supporters of of Israel are feeling legitimately much more concerned they're not able to support and there's something else 
God bless Biden, he's the past. The young people are the future. And Biden has to consider the electoral impact of this. If he is too ignorant of Palestinian concerns and too supportive of un, unjustifiable Israeli actions, mm. he will lose large numbers of votes among the younger voters. He has to take that into consideration. I think that that is healthy for Israel. Yeah. The, uh, I think they're starting to get that message a little, the Biden administration, about the younger generation, including the younger generation of Jews um, in America. Uh, you know, at the same time, I mean, one thing that worries me is the way some of this activism is being perceived. Uh, you know, people see a demonstration that includes uh, a Palestinian flag or has some people chanting from the river to the sea. And they kind of assume the worst about what that means. A lot of people think a Palestinian flag is a Hamas flag. Uh, and and people think that everybody who chants from the river to the sea wants to kill all the Jews. You know, my daughters have been to a couple of these ceasefire demonstrations along with like all their Jewish friends. OK, and I'm, I and I asked them about it. And I'm here to tell you the young people chanting from the river to the sea. It, it does not mean that they want to kill all the Jews. And. Uh, and it worries me the way, uh, you know, it basically means one state solution to a lot of them. And and I know you're saying that's impractical, but it's not genocide. It's just giving everybody the vote. hundred <laughs> percent. Look, I, I don't think BDS is the most effective way to advance the Palestinian cause, but I will go to the mattresses in order to protect it as a legitimate form of political expression, completely legitimate. I will tell you one story. Um, I work a lot with senior government officials. And a few years back, I was meeting with a senior member of the British cabinet, then you know, um, you know, Oxbridge, you know, public school. And he says to me, Danny, there's never gonna be peace because the Jews own Congress and the Jews own the media. That was blatant anti-Semitism because it drew its imagery from centuries of Jew hatred that were dangerous for Jews. Now, had he said, I think that one of the major obstacles to peace is the inordinate influence of the Israel lobby on decision makers, politicians, and the media, I would have signed that or something close to that. Mm. Um, my, my fear is that the pro-Palestinian movement will be a mirror image of the pro-Israel um, crowd, mm -hmm. which I am very upset with. I think nobody is, you know, very few organizations causing more mm -hmm. damage to Israel than APAC. It is legitimate. You don't have to be vegetarian. You have freedom of speech. But there are expressions of anti-Semitism, and they can be identified. And look, I live in Israel. And uh, a friend of mine, a great scholar who passed away a few years ago, once said, you know what the, the essence of my Zionism is? When you're called a dirty Jew, you go home and take a shower. I'm not exposed on a daily basis to anti-Semitism. I'm a graduate of Cornell, and I'm seeing what's happening today at Cornell. I'm not even talking about the one speech of this scholar, or so-called scholar. There are students at Cornell who are Jewish and afraid because they're mm -hmm. Jewish. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're being paranoid. So I, I certainly, and, and it's payback because we 
pro-Israel camp have been using anti-Semitism as a a ploy, um, a gimmick in order to stifle criticism. We've abused the term. I get that. Mm -hmm. But my fear is that the voices that are not anti-Semitic will, if not be drowned, will not be expressed properly. I don't think I'm responsible for settler violence. I'm trying to stop it, but we're in the same camp. Yeah. Um, can I uh, change the subject a little and ask you about the October 7th attack? Do you have kind of a theory of the case as to what exactly Hamas's a kind of uh, tactical or strategic objective was? I, I've heard different accounts and I, I could go into them. Uh, but um, I mean, first of all, well, what, anything you want to say about that? Because I think you can certainly. Uh, make the case that uh, given all the atrocities, this did not serve the interests of the Palestinian people. Of course, you can also make the case that a lot of politicians don't really care about their constituents. So the fact that it doesn't serve the interests of the Palestinian people, if that's indeed true, doesn't mean that this isn't exactly what Hamas wanted. But I've also heard people say, uh, well, uh, that they didn't uh, that they didn't want the amount of blowback they've gotten, and they didn't actually expect the extent of killing that transpired on October seventh. Um, you know, at their hands. What, do you have a? What's your theory? My theory is to uh, listen to the people who are experts, because I am not. But I have an opinion, even though it's not based on expertise. And you alluded to it. Um, they attacked because um, they want to destroy Israel. That's their goal. We shouldn't have any illusion about it. I don't say the same about um, you know, Palestinian Authority or others. Um, that they thought that the time was ripe because there was zero political movement and you know, force is the only language that Israel understands. And they had no problem or no compunction. They wanted to kill people, they wanted to take hostages, and they were exponentially more successful than they had wished for. Now, initially, they celebrated that. Uh, We have been spared a lot of the clips that you've seen, I just can't see them, of decapitated bodies being paraded through the streets. I don't want to see them, I want to hear about them. But that was not, you know, something, uh, you know, accidental. On the other hand, Today, um, seeing the um, horrific damage that is being caused, they did not to be expect, I believe, or I'm told, to be so successful as to warrant a mass incursion that is taking place at such horrible, unspeakable human cost. Um, so that that's the most convincing theory that I've heard, but I really can't stand behind it. Well, I agree with you that I don't think they wanted a response of this magnitude. There are people who are saying, no, don't you understand, Israel? You're doing exactly what they want. I don't think they wanted this. Uh, And I think, in fact, uh, I I definitely agree they wanted to take the hostages. And I think they thought that those would the hostages would be more powerful levers than they seem to be for the time being. I mean, remember and I remember when Israel exchange like a jillion prisoners for one soldier. I, I thought, man, are you sure you want to set this precedent? I mean, this is like massive positive reinforcement. 
for taking hostages. I think one thing Hamas thought is, look, if we've got, you know, over 100 hostages, we're, we're really in the driver's seat. And, uh, and I think that coupled with them not anticipating uh, maybe how widespread the atrocity would be and maybe not uh, quite understanding what just Israeli psychology, I think, has led them to be uh, surprised by the magnitude of the response. Um, when I hear our minister say, would it be victorious? I say, what does it mean to be victorious? What, what, what does it mean in this context? What's your end game? Now, I don't know what the end game is, but I know that there are two perceptions of the immediate um, necessity of this war. Um, one, priority number one, Israel cannot afford to abandon you know, uh, the 230 of its citizens. It can't do it. It is a breach of trust of the highest order. The major goal, return the hostages and pay whatever you need. You have had former ministers of defense, uh, Shaul Mufaz saying, take all of the security prisoners and give them back in exchange for all. There are those who say, look, if we do not punish um, and dismantle Hamas as a functioning organization, it can't be wiped out. We are only you know, laying the ground for another war. Deterrence is a reality. And if Israel did not respond at all, we would already be at war with the Hezbollah in the north. This is a dangerous neighborhood. Now, a while back, I'm doing appearances in um, some of the Arab world, Saudi um, media. And I was offered an interview and they said, well, one of the questions that we'll be asking you is, do you support the war? I said, I'm not gonna do the interview. It's a legitimate question, but I don't have an easy answer for that. What is becoming apparent is that there are those who say you can have both. It's becoming more apparent that you can't have both. If you have a major operation that will be geared to incapacitate Hamas, you will likely be sacrificing the hostages. And if you sacrifice the hostages, you may well be limiting yourself to a very limited um, uh, military operation. And the notion that you can have a little bit of both may be delusional. So I don't know. I, I do not think, no, another story. Well, several years ago, uh, I was standing in the yard, the garden of the U.S. Consulate of Blessed Memory with an American general, Air Force general, later went on to be one of the top people in the Joint Chief of Staff, and we were having a beer in the yard. And out of the blue, he's an Air Force general. We said, Danny, was the um, dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan a war crime? I said, well, I, I, I haven't devoted much thought. He said, well, I have. I think that the bomb on Hiroshima was justified. It saved hundreds of thousands of lives, as devastating as it was. Nagasaki was a war crime. It wasn't necessary. Now, mm -hmm. I was stunned. I never expected to hear that from a general and from the Vietnam War era. Um, 
I've, I've had pause to think about that. Israel has to respond militarily. It has to. I, on the other hand, you look at the devastation. It is inevitable that there will be civilian casualties. And the unthinkable question is, how can you carry out an effective deterring military operation with minimal civilian casualties? I don't know how to answer that. And I'm not sure there is an answer. And I'm torn over that. But the option of saying, okay, we're going to take this in stride and that response didn't exist. And we're going to go through the emotions didn't exist. And I'm still, I know I see the scope of devastation. You know, I remember the war in Lebanon, the first war in Lebanon, when we, Israel, were um, the overlooking Beirut, laying siege to Beirut. Ultimately, Arafat would leave. And during that siege, there was artillery bombardments of sites in Beirut from the hills overlooking Beirut by Israeli artillery. And my friend of Wurmburg, who later became the mm -hmm. speaker of the Knesset, said, what would you be thinking if those kids were Israeli? And it's very haunting. I cannot see the civilian casualties in Gaza without, what if they were my kids? Or my friends, look, I am going through this war together with Palestinians on the other side of town. There is a lot of places where there's bad blood, even in human rights organizations. No, we're working together. Well, I was asked by a major news network to talk about what it's like to be a peacemaker and a bridge builder. I'm nothing of the kind. I work. And I have Palestinian colleagues, and we're in constant contact several times a day. They're my eyes and ears to what's happening in East Jerusalem. I trust them. We check each other, and they trust me. And we don't talk about the uh, horrors unless it's necessary, but when we do, we don't attribute bad faith to one another. We trust one another, and it's not touchy-feely. I, you know, I can't, you know, I, I knew that they're scared for their families in the way, look, in the background here, I don't know if you heard it, the TV's on. And the TV's on because out of the corner of my eye, I have to see if there are uh, missiles heading towards Tel Aviv. I'm in Jerusalem. I'll hear, a, I will hear a siren. I have three daughters in Tel Aviv and we have a family protocol. And the protocol is if there is an air raid alert over Tel Aviv, we go into a WhatsApp group. Where are you? In, in the stairwell, in the shelter? Did you hear anything? Was it a hit? Was it an interception? And it's usually five minutes. They're relatively safe. What do parents of Palestinian kids who don't have homes, much less shelters? I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't have any answers for you, so please don't ask. Um, okay. Uh, how about... Uh... Well, let me, let, let me let me make a statement then, and I, I won't ask, but I'll get you to respond. Um, uh, you know, leaving aside the moral issues associated with civilian casualties, um, there's just the question of uh, of Israel's own long-term national security interests. Like, I was looking at a picture today of these Palestinians. They seem to be kind of fleeing. It was in Gaza. Uh, and it was two, in the foreground were two kids who were maybe, I don't know, eight or nine. And I thought, you know, in five years, they'll be able to, they'll, they can hold guns. And like, you know, every day of this is, you know, the old question of 
whether you're not just creating the next generation of of terrorists. I, I think there's a tendency, you know, the, the idea of that uh, eliminating Hamas solves the problem seems to me to misunderstand the full dynamics of the problem. You know, an organization like Hamas cannot do what they did on October 7th unless they have a lot of people who hate Israel, uh, you know, at their disposal to serve as as the soldiers, to serve as the militants, the terrorists, whatever you want to call them, uh, but also uh, to provide at least a baseline of public approval of what happened. I don't know how many people in Gaza supported it, liked it, whatever, but you know, a group, a group like uh, Hamas will be stronger if there are more young people who are having experiences at this moment. In other words, a future group, whether it's called Hamas or not, a future group like that uh, will be stronger uh, the more the more people there, are, the young people there are now who feel they're suffering at the hands um, of Israel. And if there are enough of them, uh I just don't think eliminating Hamas matters in a certain sense because it's so predictable that some sort of uh, radical organization will be able to, to get roots there, right? I totally agree with the caveat because uh, people could be all agreeing. No, there is nothing that justifies the savagery of the stop. We've gotten that out of the way. But when we observe things, the ultimate destabilizer is hopelessness. I don't know Hamas and Gaza. I know the kids in Jerusalem. And they cannot imagine a trajectory whereby they will have a better life. And a better life is not materially. You, not mean, the, you mean the Palestinian kids in Palestinian Jerusalem? Palestinian kids. And they cannot imagine a trajectory of how they become free. The deficit, they're being offered material benefits when the real deficit is dignity and freedom and there's no prospect of that and mm -hmm. hopelessness is the great destabilizer um i've been asked numerous times by senior people in europe and the united states danny what do we do with this miserable government we can't stop them he said my my number one or number two advice is anything that will display in word and in deed Palestinian lives matter. We have your back. We understand we are hearing you and we're not just spouting sympathy. We will move result and you can't do that on the cheap. The best way of combating Hamas in addition to military preparedness is offering hope. When, when there is zero political movement, the interpretation is Force is the only language that Israel understands, and that too breeds terrorism. The way of eradicating, eradicating Hamas is by creating a, an alternative through a political process which is proud, which is Palestinian, which is not necessarily vegetarian, which does not rule out necessarily armed conflict uh, or resistance but that ultimately plays by rules and has the goal of living alongside of Israel. If there would be an opportunity like that, Hamas would shrivel. It wouldn't go away, it would shrivel. It would be far less compelling and far less convincing. Okay, let me ask you a final question that's kind of related to that. Um, the uh, So we've talked about... Uh, well, we've talked about BDS, uh, whose uh, aim, uh, among other things, I guess, uh, would be to get 
Palestinians the vote, uh, the Palestinians in in the occupied territory the vote. In other words, uh, a certain kind of one state solution. Um, you've said that's not politically realistic in uh, given Israeli politics. Um, in the reality of the world, it's not possible. You yeah. want to have a one-state solution between the Armenians and the Turks? Yeah, tell me about it. Okay, but but let me make let me say one thing I've heard people say, which I think is kind of a good point, and then ask you the final question. The thing I've heard people say is, uh, you know, people keep saying, you know, where is the Palestinian Martin Luther King? Where is the Palestinian Mandela? And one answer you hear from Palestinians is, well, every time one starts to arise, the Israelis jail them or somehow undermine them. That's that's. That's one answer. Another answer I've heard is, look, BDS, say what you want, but it's a peaceful movement. And what happens? They call everyone who's part of it an anti-Semite. And in America, they actually pass laws at the state level that punish people uh, who, who want to do business with the government unless they will sign a statement saying, I will never espouse a boycott of Israel. So so there's that. Now, that I'm not to my question yet, but if you want to if you want to reply to that, Go ahead. It looks like you do. Um, you can quibble about the uh, efficiency of BDS. It is a legitimate form of expression. And to be honest with you, it's having an impact. Mm -hmm. um, I think criminalizing uh, opposition to Israel does Israel a great disservice. It has trained us that we can bully people, crack the whip into submission and agreement. And we're now paying um, the price of that. As to a Palestinian, uh, Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela, the UK has done polling forever, way back to the British mandate. And a few years back, they showed me a poll. Uh, who are the most popular uh, political figures in the West Bank. They asked who is best for the Palestinian people? Salam Fayyad, the prime minister, um, manager, almost pacifist, 80% approval rating. The closest one behind him was way in the 20s. And then they asked, who will you vote for? Salam Fayyad got 3%. Hmm. Why? because there are two different role, role, roles that you have. I am a great supporter of the Association for Civil Rights in Israel. But Association for Civil Rights in Israel is an organization that applies to a state. National liberation movements need a liberator and not a manager. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can speak of my experience in Jerusalem. There have been times in recent weeks when Israel has wanted to reach out to the leaders of East Jerusalem and there aren't any. Why? Because we have imprisoned some, exiled the others, forced others to uh, you know, go into high tech. Because of the, and we have not left any political space for the emergence. We don't have anybody to talk to. One of the main things I say is create political space for Palestinians in East Jerusalem, my turf, and anybody who is not violent. Mm -hmm. or at least blatantly violent, and we'll have somebody to talk to. But we don't allow that. We're denationalizing them. Yeah. Okay, now for my long-awaited actual final question. Um, is it possible that if 
you saw uh, something that was reminiscent of the civil rights movement, which is to say massive, peaceful mobilization of West Bank Palestinians demanding only one thing, and that is the right to vote. If you saw that, which of course points toward a one-state solution, which you're saying is not politically conceivable, would it at least make Israel more flexible in negotiations on a two-state solution? So could something like that uh, mm -hmm. actually scare Israelis enough so that we actually wound up having a successful two-state negotiation? It's a great question. You know, um, after the failure of the Camp David talks, one of the Palestinian negotiators, Palestinian-American, Harvard grad, brilliant guy, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, basically abandoning the two-state solution and saying one state. And we were kind of buddies. And I asked them, you know, you don't really believe that, do you? You're trying to scare the shit out of Israelis, aren't you? And he kind of grinned and didn't admit it. But I will point out something else. Um, two years ago, um, there were large-scale demonstrations of Palestinians at the border in Gaza, and we were firing and injuring and killing demonstrators, and I couldn't understand why. And it's happened a little bit more now after the events of October 7th. But it dawned on me that what they were doing was sending a message to the West Bank. Were you to have a situation where tens of thousands of Palestinians from different towns and villages would start marching on the settlements uh, non-violently, Israel would not have a response to that. Uh, and it was basically trying to deter that. And I think that that at some point is also going to be inevitable uh, because there's no solution. You know, there was... In, in one of the previous waves of terror, I think in 2014, a 13-year-old girl with scissors stabbed uh, a policeman in the leg, and she was shot dead. And the chief of staff said, that was not necessary. I don't want to live in a society where 13-year-old girls with scissors are killed like that. And he said, Israel has a response to the Iranian nuclear capability. Israel has a response to more than 100,000 missiles pointed at Israel. Israel does not have a military response to a 13-year-old girl with scissors. Mm -hmm. Well, it gets back to what I was saying about uh, the virtues of your enemy being a sovereign state as opposed to a bunch of people who live within territory you control. Um, so, uh, well, thank you so much, Danny. Um, you know, people can follow you on Twitter at D-A-N-I-E-L-S-E-I-D-E. -E -E. Well, wait, <laughs> make sure I get this right. D-E-M-N-N. Right, side dumb man with two N's at the end. Um, and I'm Robert Ryder on Twitter, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Is there any place else they should go to uh, to look for your work. You're quite active on Twitter these days, understandably. Yeah. I would um, follow Yudha Shaul, very perceptive. She's one of the founders of Breaking Silence. Mm. Um, How do you spell uh, that? Yudha, uh, Y-E-H-U-D-A, Shaul, S-H-A-U-L. Okay. Uh, 972 Magazine. Um, right. 
you have to be really cautious. There are a lot of rumors out there. Verify, verify, verify. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much, uh, Danny. I hope I hope things improve, uh, even if it may not happen this week. 